Welcome to the Film Coterie Classics Edition. I'm Roger. I'm Kevin. And it's great to be back doing a special holiday edition of the Film Coterie Classics Podcast. Great to be back. Yeah. Um, For those of you who are new to our podcast and have been listening to the regular Film Coterie Podcast, uh, this is something that we aim to do maybe once a month or so, and that's a classics edition of the Film Coterie Podcast, where we sit down and we review a classic older film, and we've got a doozy in this holiday season today. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. <laughs> it's going to be uh, It's a Wonderful Life, and we're going to get to that here in just a minute. That'll be really the heart of the whole, of the whole episode. Uh, and then we're also going to maybe mention our top five holiday films, Christmas films that we enjoy. But Kevin... What's going on, man? It's great to have you on the podcast. Well, it's great to be back. Um, haven't been doing much lately, convalescing, um, you know, catching up on some old movies and, um, you know, some newer ones, trying to catch up on some newer ones, too. We're, we're slowly trying to woo Kevin into the regular Film Coterie podcast. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm, I'm crawling out from under the classics rock. You, you know. <laughs> no pun intended. And... Uh, yeah, for uh, some you know newer movies, and I do like newer movies. I mean, my favorites are always going to be the classics. I think as Rogers is sure. as well, but uh, there's there's a lot of good new movies out there. Absolutely, and uh, it is Christmas season, the holiday yes. season. So we want to wish a happy holidays to everybody out there listening to the podcast. And so, Kevin, do you have any holiday Christmas traditions that you and your family do, or what do you guys do to get in the ho- Christmas spirit? Well. Um, yeah, we do have uh, traditions. Um, basically, our uh, tradition is um, trying to keep Evie from finding all the presents while my daughter's <laughs> eight. That's uh, become a tradition, I guess. You I've could been say. there, brother. Uh, no, but we, um, you know, we always, um, uh, you know, sit around. We'll watch. Um, there's certain movies that we always watch. Of course, her being eight, she gets to choose. So it's always Home Alone. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, there are movies that are, you know, I'm not going to let her watch anything that, you know, I wouldn't want to see, too, um, or haven't liked. But, um, yeah, and, and uh, every uh, Christmas Eve for the past, I've been married um, 18 years now, so I think it's been at least maybe the full 18, maybe 17. Believe it or not, um, every Christmas Eve we watch um, Christmas Vacation. Which is, I know, I know Roger's over here thinking no, I'm going to no, say... Uh, I, I'm not laughing. No, no, no. I'm not okay. laughing hey. because, hey, no, I'm not no. laughing at all because every single year, Thanksgiving night, to start our holiday tradition, we watch Christmas no, Vacation. You, kid, oh, wow. I'm not joking. Wow, okay. My kids love that movie. I couldn't watch it for many years because they were just way too young. For, right. You know, so the, yeah. the content's a little saucy at times, you yeah. know. My wife, we usually, you know, Evie's in bed by that time. I, and still at this point, I mean, she's going to be eight here, so, yeah, you know. But that's our Thanksgiving. At, at, after we have all of our food, we're dead tired. We're sick of watching football. Um, and we, we also take, we set up the tree, you know, Thanksgiving night, and then we decorate, you know, Black Friday. We don't go shopping. We decorate. <laughs> Yeah, the house, but um, it's kind of our tradition, kind of become our tradition to put on Christmas Vacation with Chevy Chase and uh, laugh and have a good time. We always point out something we didn't see or forgot about, you know, in the movie, and yeah. Uh, yeah. And then you know, Christmas Eve, like I said before, uh, Evie goes to bed. We'll put on um, you know, Christmas music, um, of course, you know, from my childhood, uh, and um, 
you know, Bing Crosby, that type of stuff. And, um, you know, we'll sit there and, and, um, drink hot chocolate or whatever. And, uh, um, you know, just talk and, and talk about old memories and stuff. Sure. Uh, my wife and I will. And, yeah, absolutely. and that, that type of thing. And then when she goes to bed, then it's uh, Chevy Chase time. So <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Absolutely. Well, uh, uh, as this podcast releases the first week of December, um, I would be really curious about what are your holiday traditions? What do you guys do? What are your holiday movies that you watch? Um, so I'll, I'll probably have a link on Facebook, our, our film coterie page on Facebook of what is your favorite holiday uh, movie, your favorite Christmas movie, kind of to coincide with this podcast. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Well, I'm ready to jump right into our feature for today, and it is the amazing classic, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, let's take a quick break and give you a little soundbite from the movie to bring you into it. You're listening to the Film Coterie Podcast. Hello, Joseph. Trouble? Looks like we'll have to send someone down. A lot of people asking for help for a man named George Bailey. Joseph, send for Clarence. Hey, who's that? That's your problem, George Bailey. A boy? That's him when he was 12, back in 1919. I want the board to know that George gave up his trip to Europe to help straighten things out here these past two months. Now you listen to me. I don't want any plastic, I don't want any ground floors, and I don't want to get married ever to anyone. You understand that? I want to do what I want to do. And you're... And you're... You know what we're going to do? We're going to shoot the works. A whole week in New York, a whole week in Bermuda, the highest hotels, the oldest champagne, the richest caviar, the hottest music, and the prettiest wife. All right, and we are back, and this is the Film Coterie Classics Edition, and in today's podcast... We're going to be reviewing the classic, iconic film, It's a Wonderful Life. Yes, incredible movie. I mean, if you haven't seen it, you know, I, I imagine there's a small percentage of people that haven't seen it or haven't really sit down to watch it. I mean, it's it, it, to me, it's, you know, not one of those films that you can have on, you know, while you're trimming the tree and stuff like that. I mean, it's fine, but you really got to sit down and watch this movie if you've never seen it. It's incredible. Absolutely. So for those of you who may have been living under a rock and have never seen It's a Wonderful Life, or maybe it's been a long time, let me just read a real quick synopsis of the film. And then we'll, we're, we're just going to do a deep dive. We're going to take our time. We'll probably ramble some, but we're going to get into this film, uh, bring up some of our favorite memories and thoughts about this film. Um, both of us, I think, would consider this a... Um, Four star, five star, classic, you know, movie. We're both huge fans of the film. Yes. We actually agree yeah, for once. I know. <laughs> it's kind of it took Jimmy Stewart and It's a Wonderful Life yeah, to bring to bring us together. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so anyway, this is right from the Wikipedia page, the source of all truth on the internet. Right? Oh yes, definitely. <laughs> and it says It's a Wonderful Life is a nineteen forty six American Christmas fantasy comedy drama. Filmed and produced and directed by Frank Capra. Based on the short story, The Greatest Gift, the film is considered one of the most loved films in American cinema and has become traditional viewing during the Christmas season. The film stars James Stewart, or as we refer to him as Jimmy, Jimmy. 
as George Bailey, a man who has given up on his dreams in order to help others and whose imminent suicide on Christmas Eve brings about the intervention of his guardian angel, Clarence Oddbody, played by Henry Travers, of course. Uh, Clarence shows George all the lives he has touched and how different in his community of Bedford Falls would be had he never been born. And so that's kind of just a real quick synopsis of the film. Um, let me start off, Kevin. How were you introduced? Do you even remember how were you introduced to It's a Wonderful Life? Um, I believe it was um, a film that um, uh, was on TV um, and uh, my parents were watching it and, you know, they liked old movies and, um, you know, introduced me to it. And I have to tell you, there's a lot of films, um, you know, that you need a second viewing sometimes or whatever. But I mean, the moment I watched that film, I was like, okay, this is one of the best films. It's not just the message that it sends. And I think it sends all kinds of different messages, um, you know, in a way. And everybody takes from it, you know, uh, something different. But yeah. um, yeah, I mean, I just, I remember. And then I had... it was a tradition, I guess you'd say, but it was almost, um, you know, a mindless thing that every um, Christmas Eve night after everybody had gone to bed, um, whether we'd already watched it as a family or whatever, I would sit down alone in my room and watch watch it again. Didn't matter how late it was or how early I had to get up for Christmas Day because the movie's uh, running time is probably over two hours, I think. Yeah, I, I, it's probably two and a half. Two and a half, yeah. Easily. And... Um, you know, but you don't feel like it's 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 one of those films that you know you want more. I mean, it's it's just so incredible. Again, Frank Capra, who um, a wonderful director, um, uh, directed this film, and, and it's just it is amazing. I can't you know actually say enough about it. Well, well I know Kevin. For me, um, I was introduced to this the exact same way. Um, you know, you and I kind of got into classic films, or you got me into classic films back in the 80s when we were in high school best thing ever did for you thanks to video stores and vhs tapes you know (laughs) oh yeah yep (laughs) but i have to say the reason i even have an interest in this film is because it was on regular tv every year at christmas oh yeah yeah still is and and, and i'll never forget it's actually two hours and 10 minutes i was looking it up on imdb the running time I'll, i'll never forget it was the first black and white film i had ever seen and i remember thinking this is a great story. And I remember it kind of warmed my heart at the end, you know, and yeah. I thought if black and white films are actually this decent, I might be open to watching other black and white films, right. you know? And, and speaking of that, let me ask you a question. Um, because there's a lot of people out there that don't like uh, black and white films because they're black and white films. And they're like, oh, you know, um, where, you know, there's directors even today that will use black and white um, as a means, uh, an art form, an art form means, um, now, when you first watched Black and White, just probably even as I did, it was like, oh, Black and White movie. Now, when you see a Black and White, do you even notice it's Black and White? I mean, it's not, you know, you're not like, oh, this is a Black and White film, not a color film. It's just, uh, I, I mean, you know, you know pro- what I'm saying? Probably being in the minority, you know, I don't even notice that. I mean, I notice that's Black and White, but there's never, ever a thought, oh, this is a Black and White film. Right, yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and I would challenge, you know, and I, and I don't know if we said this on the last, uh, the first Film Coterie podcast that we did, Classics Edition, back in the summer, but I would challenge anyone who considers Black and White an old, dead medium, you know, to go back and watch a Hitchcock yeah. Black and White. Um, go watch a modern. Go watch Schindler's List. 
and see the use of black and white and then, you know, and, and, and there's such a powerful, there's certain things that you cannot convey in color. Right. I mean, it just even, can't, it just can't be lighting and right. go, go back and watch a classic, um, film noir film, you know, right. it cannot be, those same films cannot be communicated in color. I love color. I, I'm all for 4k ultra. I love the, the latest Avengers, you know, the, the latest Marvel movie that was, that's just beautifully shot. I love those too. But there's something just incredible about a well shot, well lighted. I mean, and that's lighting is is the key. I mean, it's it's one of those things where, you know, a lot of people's like, oh, well, they didn't have color back then. Well, yes, they did. I mean, you've got, I mean, two tone Technicolor and, and yes. everything like that. They had it in the 1920s. A lot of uh, yeah, a lot of directors intentionally wanted to yes. shoot. If you go back and see The Third Man, and you see those wet city streets lit up. In black and white, it's just a glorious thing. Some of these films that they did would not work in color. There's uh, several films, you know. Again, Hitchcock with his lighting um, techniques. Um, yeah, I always, I'll, I'm always going to bring up Hitchcock. Yeah. If he had a Christmas film, I, but unfortunately, I, I but anyway, I think I, we're getting sidetracked here. Yeah, we are getting sidetracked. <laughs> but what I what I'm saying is is don't ever not watch a film because it's black and white. I mean, right. even. Today, um, it's you know in this era. I mean, Woody Allen um, has uh, movies that he did in black and white, and obviously he can afford to do color movies. But you know, um, it's it seriously is oh, yeah. an art Absolutely. form. It's an art form. Yep. So so anyway, so we both kind of came to It's a Wonderful Life the same way. Um, let's talk about a little bit about the background, Kevin. Uh, explain to our listeners you know, a little bit, or I can do it, how this film kind of came into being, you know. It, it was originally a story written by uh, Philip Van Doren Stern in 1939. It was called The Greatest Gift. I think it was a Christmas card or a little mini booklet. It was a Christmas card, I believe. That, that he sent out to like 50 or so of his friends, you know. Right. And interesting enough, here's some trivia. Side, I was doing some research on this film this film was picked up by, I think it was Liberty, or R it started at Liberty and ended up at RKO or vice versa. I can't remember. But anyway, Cary Grant's company bought this, they bought this rights to this, thinking Cary Grant would star in this film. And and they looked at it, and, and I'm, I'm looking at my notes here uh, that I have about this, and it says that, yeah, they showed it to Cary Grant's Hollywood agent in 1944. RKO bought the rights for $10,000 hoping to turn the story into a vehicle for Grant. But ironically, after he looked at the script, didn't like it, looked at several other scripts, they bought a whole slew of scripts at this time, he ended up choosing The Bishop's Wife. Yes. And starred in it instead. Right. Which is a an amazing classic yes, Christmas film. It, it is film, a wonderful, you know? it's a, you know, uh, a wonderful movie, uh, The Bishop's Wife. Um, it actually came out um, the year, uh, 1947, right after... Um, right. Right after It's a Wonderful Life. You know, and some interesting background about this film. Um, when you look at the stars, Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed were both from small towns in, in, middle, in, in America. Jimmy from Indiana, Pennsylvania. Donna Reed from Denison, Iowa. Um, they grew up in small towns. So they iconically knew these roles, you know, going into it. America had just come out of World War II. Yes. You know? And if I'm not mistaken, was this Jimmy's first film? This was Jimmy yeah. Stewart's very first film after after the, after the war. You yeah. Know? So you have all of this background that, that is going on. And in the midst of that, um, Frank Capra decides to uh, 
um, well, he pitches this story to Jimmy Stewart and tell the story. Oh, yeah, he he about pitched that. he pitched the story to Jimmy Stewart. He sat him down. And he's like, okay, well, you know, I've got a movie um, about this guy who um, lives in this small town, and he he doesn't like living there, and he. Um, you know, all these bad things happen to him. And, you know, he's just pitching it real quick to, to Jimmy. And he's like, all these bad things happen to him. So bad that, you know, he wants to commit suicide. But right when he, you know, tries to commit suicide, an angel named Clarence comes down. And then he just looked at Jimmy and he's like, this isn't sounding very good. And Jimmy Stewart said, well, uh, uh, Frank, he's like, if you've got a film that uh, is going to be, you know, me committing suicide and angel named Clarence coming to when, when do we start? And so that was, that was it. And that's all it took because Jimmy at that point had done two other films with Frank Capra and trusted him implicitly. I mean, there was nothing, you know, to, in Jimmy's mind that Frank Capra, you know, wouldn't turn to gold or, or wouldn't be something that a project that he would not want to be in. So he basically, he's like, I don't care what it's about. Let's do this thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what other things in the background leading up to this film, Kevin? Any, any other thoughts that you have as far as, or do we just want to jump right into the release of this film? You know, and interesting, when this film was released, you know, it was an okay. I think that they budgeted it for three million, hoping it would make six million to cover advertising, right. and. It wasn't, you know, it's been told over the years that it was a huge commercial flop. It wasn't a huge commercial flop, but it never made money. It never made that initial, in its initial release, it never got close to the $6 million mark that they had set for it. Exactly. Um, but it was very well received critically, and we'll get to some of that, you know, uh, maybe later in the in, in, in our discussion of it. But um, Which happens a lot. I mean, there's a lot of movies that come out and... Um, you know, they're received either terribly or fair or whatever that end up classics. Yeah. And, and, and it's so funny what a critic likes as a film versus what the mass media likes as a film is often two very different. Oh yeah. I mean, usually they don't agree. You know, every year just go look at the top 10 grossing films and the top 10 films nominated for an, an Academy award. Very rarely do you ever have crossover. Right. In those lists. Usually if a critic says it's bad, I go see it. (laughs) Alrighty then. <laughs> um, and so, you know, you have uh, iconic people playing in this film. You know, uh, Jimmy Stewart, Donna Reed, Lionel Barrymore, just as those three iconic people. L- l- let's just start. Let's just start with Jimmy Stewart. You know, let's talk a little bit. Talk, you know, walk our audience, Kevin, through where was Jimmy Stewart in his life? What had he made to this point? You know, where was he leading up to It's a Wonderful Life? Well, if I'm not mistaken, his last film was Mr. Smith Goes to Washington before he went off to war. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to I believe it is. Yes. But let me look it up here. And, um, you know, so he went off to war and was a war hero. I mean, Roger probably can tell you uh, more than this. I can't remember how many people he was a flyer or how many he shot down. Um, Of course, being Jimmy Stewart, very modest about it. He never really talked about it, as a lot of servicemen didn't when they came back, naturally. And um, then uh, It's a Wonderful Life was the first film. And and to kind of backtrack a little bit, the reason, um, according to Jimmy Stewart... Um, that It's a Wonderful Life wasn't a huge success of, of what they thought. It was done at the wrong time. Um, World War II just being over, 
people wanted to go see something. I mean, this is an uplifting movie, but you know, they still wanted to go see, you know, out and out comedies. Um, you know, the, the the world had been so you know um, shattered with with obviously the war, right? So it was comedies and and things like that that people were. Uh, wanting to see and everything and so that's one of the reasons that it got panned if this movie had come out um, before the war I think it would have um, done much better in the theaters I mean we'll never know but I think sure. that, that's my opinion I mean because you got to look at Mr. Smith goes to Washington and all that stuff but at that point in time they just weren't ready for a film like this they were ready yeah. to and and you know Jimmy Stewart was a bona fide um Hollywood star before yes. the war. You oh know? yeah, yeah. And actually, Mr. Smith was wasn't the last movie. Okay. Um, uh, ironically, it was. Um, let me pull it up here. Uh, Zigfield Girl was the last one that he had did in forty one. Um, yes. Okay. I didn't. Uh, yeah. yeah. But I've... he but he had done the Philadelphia Story. He had done the Shop Around the Corner. He had done Destry Rides again, and he had done Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. So there. Those were four iconic films that really gave him huge success. Yes. You know? I mean, he had, he'd started acting, and I could get into the whole biography, in 35 <laughs> with Art Trouble and then did Murder Man in 36, and we could go, you know, I could take you right through because he's my favorite actor of all time. But anyway, it's like this career was getting ready to launch into superstardom, and then, bam, the war hits, and he's gone for five years, Yeah, you know, and really was a war hero, very downplayed, like you said, in his personal life. And he comes back. He comes back a changed man. Yes, he does. You know, the war changed him. And there's, you'll see in his films after the World War II. Especially the Westerns. Yes. A lot more depth and complexity. You know, I, I, I had um, Matt, uh, one of our other co-hosts, watch um, a, uh, a Jimmy Stewart Western. And he said, well, you know, I really enjoyed it. But he said, I just couldn't, I couldn't see Jimmy as, you know, when he got violent and angry, I just couldn't buy into it because I just kept seeing It's a Wonderful Life, you know. And, He's and, dead. <laughs> and, <laughs> and a lot Sorry. of people, but a lot of people, their only recollection of Jimmy Stewart is seeing him as the, you know, It's the a hem Wonderful Life. Yeah, and they, the they see him. It, in, in, you know, It's yeah. a Wonderful Life. They see him as a hem hauling, uh, you know, can't get his words out. But no, if you watch these Westerns, and to me it was easy because every man put in a situ certain situation and that's Jimmy Stewart. Um, you know, you put this man in a situation and that's why directors, all directors loved him. It right. wasn't just because he showed up on time and he was a good guy and, and, you know, knew his lines and stuff. It was because of what he could pull. He was not a method actor, which I'm, I'm not really big on method actors. Uh, some people are, um, you know, I think it's amazing what they can do. Uh, what they have to do. But a method actor, in case you don't know, just a really quick thing, is somebody that stays in character the whole entire time, whether they're shooting or whether they're not shooting. Um, you know, an actor like Jimmy Stewart, it's a job that he loves. Um, and, you know, he'll get into character immediately. And then when they say cut, he's, you know, Mr. Jimmy Stewart, husband, right. wife, you know, sure. um, kids and all that. But the there's some scenes in, in the westerns where you would not want to mess with that man at all. Well, I mean, yeah, it's just amazing. Yeah. And so we get a taste of this. There's a scene um, in the movie where he goes over to visit Mary Hatch, played by Donna Reed. Yeah. And Mary Hatch's uh, Sam Wainwright gets on the phone and calls. You know, it's a famous scene. And there's this un there's this um, 
relational tension, this the sexual tension between him, yes, you know, there is. Jimmy Stewart and and Donna Reed, and there's an attraction that's there, and and it blows up. And uh, uh, why don't we just have our listening audience? I want you to listen just a little bit of this sound clip of this, and um, uh, we'll we'll come right back. Mary, Mary, the telephone is Sam. I'll get it. Whatever were you doing? It's good here. Mary, he's waiting. Hello? Forgot my hat. Hee-haw, hello, Sam. How are you? Oh, well, that's awfully sweet of you, Sam. There's an old friend of yours here, George Bailey. You mean old Mossback George? <laughs> yes, old Mossback George. Yeehaw, put him on. Well, well, just a minute. I'll call him George. He doesn't want to speak to George, you idiot. He does so. He asked for him. Jo George, Sam wants to speak to you. Hi, Sam. Well, George Bailiofsky. Hey, a fine pal you are. What are you trying to do, steal my girl? Well, what, what do you mean? Nobody's trying to steal anybody's girl. Here, here, here's Marion. Oh, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. I want to talk to here, you. Tell Marion to get on the extension. You talk. Mother's on the extension. We... I am not. We can both hear. Come here. We're, we're listening, Sam. Uh, yeah, 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 soybeans, yeah. Well, listen, Dad snapped up the idea, and he's going to build a factory outside of Rochester. How do you like that? Rochester? Well, why Rochester? Well, why not? Can you think of anything better? Well, I don't know. Just Why not right here? You remember that uh, that old tool and machinery works? Well, you tell your father you can get that for a song and all the labor he wants, too. Half the town was thrown out of work when they closed down. Was that so? Well, I'll tell him. Hey, that sounds great. Ah, uh, baby, I knew you'd come through. Now, here's the point. Mary, Mary, you're in on this, too. Now, listen. Have you got any money? Money? Yeah. Well, a little. Well, now, listen. I want you to put every cent you've got into our stock. Do you hear? He says it's the chance of a lifetime. Now, you listen to me. I don't want any plastics, and I don't want any ground floors, and I don't want to get married ever to anyone. You understand that? I want to do what I want to do. And you're... And you're... George, George, George. Okay, now... Yeah, that, that's just a great example of what we were talking about. That that's a powerful scene right there, you know. And he's he's um, interesting enough. The way they shot this film, they had built the soundstage and the house and everything, 
And this scene is the first day of shooting when Jimmy starts this movie. This is the first scene that they shot in this movie. And the first time that they filmed this, Capra had to he said, cut. And he said, we're going to have to throw that role away. I just can't show that on. And I can't show that on the screen. It was so impassioned. He was so, so his emotions boiled out all of that experience in the war and, and just who he was. It just literally came pouring out onto the screen. And I think what ended up happening was he edited that scene down a little bit um, because it was just so passionate that he Capra didn't think viewers could handle it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's passion almost to a point of um, abuse. I mean, in a, in a way, because of the way he's, he's shaking her and, and, you know, making her cry. I mean, it's just, it's just an amazing... Yeah. You know, it's an amazing scene as as many scenes are in that film. Yep. But so so Jimmy Stewart, let's talk real quickly about our other our other actor, uh, uh Donna Reed and um she she's a little bit younger than Stewart, but she began with The Getaway in 1941. She had also done Shadow of the Thin Man in 1941. Um she had done The Human Comedy in 43. And MGM decided to loan her to RKO, for, which happened all the time because the studios owned all these actors. Oh, yes. Yeah. They were just chattel property. They just literally, you know, were, 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 were owned by them. So they loaned her out to RKO for the role of Mary Hatch. And, uh, and she just fits into that what, what she will later become to known as in the Donna Reed show as that all-American mom, that wife, that woman – that's strong. I mean, you know, Donna Reed's show gets a little bit of flack for being too um, stereotypical, but I would challenge those those critics to actually watch those episodes and look at her inner strength. When she's playing Donna Stone, she's in a loving relationship with her husband and a loving family relationship, but she voices her opinion. She's yes, very she strong opinionated in those. Yes, and she is. We, and we see the same, the seeds of this, with the Mary Hatch character in It's right. a Wonderful Life. And, of course, I started watching the Donna Reed show because um, I had seen It's a Wonderful Life and, of course, a, a fan of the Thin Man movie. So I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. And I think it was Nick at Night or something when I was growing up. And, um, yeah, it is, it's a really good show. I can't remember how many seasons it ran for. but I, uh, I don't remember it, either. But it yeah. had a good run. It had a yes. good run. And then, of course, um, Donna Reed would go on to win an Oscar in the role, in the role of From Here to Eternity uh, as for Best Supporting Actor. Uh, so... You know, so she had somewhat of a decent movie career, won an Oscar, but iconically is known from the Donna Reed show, you know. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then, oh my goodness, oh, where yeah. do we even start with Lionel Barrymore, who well, who plays our villain in this film? Yeah, it, I mean, the Barrymores is a dynasty of yep. uh, actors. Well, John and Ethel, which were powerhouses. And, you know, it, for those of you who, you know, three degrees of separation – Drew Barrymore, yeah, Drew Barrymore is John Barrymore's god granddaughter. Granddaughter. Granddaughter, that's right, yes. You know, so here's this legacy all through the 20th century. But the Barrymores were stage actors, you know. Um, you know, Lionel specifically is considered one of the great cinema character actors uh, of the early 20th century, you know. Uh, he did some amazing stuff. He also was a great director. He directed Madame X in 1929, which is an iconic film. Um, he won a Best Actor Academy Award for A Free Soul in 1931. So here's a guy that has gravitas, that is had such presence, and uh, had won all these awards, had directed, had starred in films, 
and he's aging and he's aged to the point where chronic um disease and stuff had set in and he's it was arthritis arthritis yeah he could not chronic arthritis he's bound to a wheelchair and plays one of the meanest sobs yeah you'd ever want to you'd ever want to mess with here's a guy you think scrooge is bad (laughs) i'm serious if you think screw if you if people that are um you know fans of uh christmas carol and stuff like that and scrooge is you know a mean old guy and turns nice um he make basically um, Barrymore makes Scrooge um, look like a choir boy. <laughs> I think. I, I think. Yeah. Well, one of the amazing things about his performance in It's a Wonderful Life is that he physically epitomizes everything that's inwardly going on with him. Yes. What, what I mean by that is there's a bitterness, an anger, a resentment, a I hate the world. And he's battling physically. He can't walk. He's bat, you know, his his battling, battling arthritis. He's hun- even in the chair. There's a physicality to his being hunched over, and and kind of, I don't know, gargoyleish. You know, just yeah, kind of. There's 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 a he's he's a he's, his body language and everything yes. represents the kind he is. Where in, in yes. other characters, you know, it's the picture of Dorian Gray, where you look at him and if yeah, it's, I'm not going to get in that film if you haven't seen it, but watch it. Um, but I mean, it's where a great film. <laughs> yeah, where you know, on the outside he looks great, and you realize that he's an evil man. No, this guy looks evil and is yes, evil, and he is evil. And so, yeah. so that kind of is our three main. Um, uh, our three main actors. And real quick, what I wanted to say about Barrymore is um, how great of an actor he is. Because just go ahead and watch him um, in um, the uh, Frank Capra film, You Can't Take It With You. Oh, yes. Okay, where he is, again, he's on a crutch in that film. Yeah. Um, and uh, they had to use, um, basically they said that, okay, he, you know, the, the character broke his leg or something like that, you know, because of his arthritis. So they just threw that in there. And that's really how he was getting around. When you see him moving up and down the stairs and stuff like that, that's yeah. really him. It's not an act. Yeah. But he is the nicest guy you would ever want to meet in that film. I mean, you would want him as your father, He's as your grandfather. He's the heart and soul of the film. Yeah. I mean, he is just a wonderful human being. Incredible. And then to you know watch um, this wonderful life and see him as the evil Mr. Potter. I mean, it's it's night and day. Guys, it's, it's incredible. In, in the movie, you can't take it with you. He literally was in a in a wheelchair all the time, but his pride said, "I have to." Yeah. And they film him a lot sitting, which is smart. But there are scenes where he gets up and uses a cane and limps around. And like Kevin said, that's not acting. He's in, he was in fit, horrible physical pain when he when he filmed that. Yeah. So so just a just a prolific, amazing actor. So let's talk about what are some of the themes. Let's talk about the movie itself. What are some of the themes? What are some of the things that jump out to you about this movie, Kevin? Well, um, again, it's it's about this guy who doesn't, you know, to put it in a sense, I mean, it's the grass is always greener. Um, I mean, you can seriously look at that because uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart's character was always wanting to go traveling and everything like that, wanted to get out of uh, the small town Bedford Falls, wanted to be an explorer ever since he was a kid. Yep. And he got, you know, he felt stuck in this in this town. Um, you know, everything basically, you know, he, he would get, I don't remember how many chances he would get to leave you know, thought he was going to be able to right. leave, and then something would always hold him back. 
Yeah. And that was building up inside of him, um, you know, pretty much since he was a kid, you know, these, you know, things would happen and, and, and things like that. And it was just certain situations that kept him in. And I can't remember how many times, you know, he was going to leave. And even on, on, you know, their honeymoon where they were getting ready to have it. There was you know, a they, run they on got the bank. married. There was yep. a run on the bank and the money that um, he had for, for going on vacation and, and everything, and at least getting out of there for honeymoon. Um, he had to use that for um, the bank because the bank was, right. you know. There's a continual message in this film of what is the, how can I say this, the legal thing to do and what's the ethical right thing to do. And what I mean by that is all of those times he could have left and actually left the town, his friends, his family, his community high and dry. True. And, his, be, and been okay to do that because yeah. he, he chose – Self over community, over his family, over his friends, over, you know. Yeah, he could have left many times, right. but it was the moral but there was instincts an, there's in a, him. There's an ethos in him, an ethic in him that said, I've got to realize that the, the, the greater good is for the my extended community and family and not just for my own personal happiness. Right. And, and it eats at it, him. Oh, it eats away at him terribly. And, um, I mean, and that's that's the thing. I mean, it was always something that would pull him back in. Yeah, any other man would have been like, I'm out of here. But um, it was, you know, and you can see because you do get to meet his mother and his father and everything. You can see how he was brought up. Um, you know, he, he always told his dad that he was getting out, you know, when he could yeah. and everything like that. And There's didn't famous, understand, he famous, never, you know, he didn't yeah. really understand why his dad did what he did. You know, run this <clears throat> um, building and loan company. Well, company was just a you know a small little, yeah. um, you know when it would always um, you know they'd be fighting tooth and nail trying to get things done because um, of Barrymore's uh, character always you know being the big machine uh, where um, Jimmy's father and their building alone was the little machine which would always you know yeah but it was the only place you know that was good in in the town. Yep, yeah. there's a great scene in the movie. And I'm just going to call it Shake the Dust of This Town. I'm going to go play a clip for you. And when we come back, uh, we'll have some reaction from the scene from It's a Wonderful Life. I know what I'm going to do tomorrow and the next day and next year and the year after that. I'm shaking the dust of this crummy little town off my feet and I'm going to see the world. Italy, Greece, the Parthenon, the Colosseum. Then I'm coming back here and go to college and see what they know. And then I'm going to build things. I'm going to build airfields. I'm going to build skyscrapers a hundred stories high. I'm going to build bridges a mile long. Were you going to throw a rock? Hey, that's pretty good. What'd you wish, Mary? Buffalo gals, can't you come out tonight? tonight can't you come out tonight? Can't you come out tonight? By the light of the moon. What'd you wish when you threw that rock? Oh, no. Come on, no. tell me. If I told you, it might not come true. What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Hey, that's a pretty good idea. I'll give you the moon, Barry. I'll take it. Then what? Well, then you could swallow it and it'll all dissolve, see? And the moonbeams that shoot out of your fingers and your toes and the ends of your hair. Am I talking too much? Yes. 
Why don't you kiss her instead of talking her to death? How's that? Why don't you kiss her instead of talking her to death? All right, and we're back, and that's Shake the Dust of, Great this, scene. of this little town and move on in. And that Again. encapsulizes the youthful wonder of Jimmy Stewart, you know, and his youthful vigor. And there's an interesting story behind that scene, Kevin. Right. Tell, and we both, I know it's probably myth at this point, but we both heard slightly different versions. Right, and what we're going to do is when, next time when we come back, uh, the two of us will, I'm going to look it up and we'll find out who's right. We're not going to vote on it or anything, <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you can write in and let it, or you know let us know. But um, and I know every time that there's a scene afterwards, I'm like great scene. But I was just telling Roger um, before this, the the whole movie is is one is a great scene. The I whole mean, movie is a great scene. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's not like okay, there's some boring parts here. Oh, that's a great scene. I mean, seriously. But anyways, um, throwing the rocks in into the old house. Um, when it came time for Donna Reed to throw the rock, from what I heard, um, you know, they were going to have somebody else do it for her. And she's like, no, I can do it. And, um, you know, she, Jimmy Stewart did it himself. And I, I, I think he mi- missed a couple times or whatever. But she nailed it on the first one is, is what I heard. And you were saying you, you, what you heard was. Well, I, the story I heard, of course, was slightly different was, and you can hear it in the audio background of the, of the track here, is that. She tried several times and couldn't hit it. And they said, well, okay, well, let's just get a, um, an effects person to break glass when you throw it. Mm-hmm. And she said, okay. And then she got mad when she was thinking about it. And when they said action, she hurled and threw the rock. That could be. And, and she broke the glass. And then the guy, you hear a second breaking of the glass later, like a guy dropped the glass, you know, kind of a deal. And so that's the story that I had heard was she actually did break the glass. And the foil guy broke a glass he didn't necessarily hear it or understand what was going on and then he broke his glass and that's why you hear the two two different glasses breaking you could be right on that but i i do remember that yes yeah, at one point she nailed it but this movie is full of these kind of stories here's a man who's full of wonder full of hope and no truer fa- phrase has been the straw that broke the camel's back and what do we what what do we mean by that phrase there's these tiny pebbles that keep landing in his life, disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. And it brings us to what do you think as we get toward the end of this film, Kevin? What are what what is what would you say is probably the climactic scene where it shows he's a completely broken man? Well, and, and that's the thing. I mean, every every man has his breaking point. Obviously, you know, okay, but the thing of it is, is he is his own breaking point because, again, the grass is always greener. Now, these things that he doesn't see that are happening, I mean, like the one scene where um, the passionate kiss um, with Donna Reed when he's telling her that he does not want any of this stuff, you know, he's mad at himself because he loves her. I mean, that's, that's the anger because he doesn't want to because she's somebody that can keep him grounded and Bedford Falls because she has no uh, desire to leave. She loves home, and, and she even tells him she's like, you know, what's wrong with Bedford Falls and all this? Yeah. Um, but he is causing his own. You know, I'm not saying he, he's you know the problems, but I mean he's letting them become problems instead of realizing. Then that's why the angel has to come down and and, and show him and teach him. Yeah. You know, because he's he still couldn't get it. He still couldn't. No matter what would happen. And, and, you know, he wouldn't think about all the people that he's helped, 
you know, by keeping the building and loan going after his father died, you know, um, about the kids that he, you know, if he had left and not married the girl, um, you know, what, you know, these, these wonderful kids that he had. Oh, yeah. Just all these things. He's not seeing any of this stuff. And I would say the, the final straw um, was when um, his assistant at the bank played by um, – Right, that guy. <laughs> yes. Okay. Anyways, <laughs> take two. Uh, no. Um, anyways, loses uh, eight thousand dollars. Yes, his um, uncle. His uncle. Yes, his uncle who also works at the bank. Um, yes. I'll think of his name in a minute. Mitchell, I believe, is his last name. Hold on, I'll bring you. We'll I'll, get it. I'll up. bring it up we'll, here. We'll, we'll find it. Oh, we're t- we're terrible. Uh, he, he we're was, terrible podcasters. Uh, yeah, it's just you know. Oh, what can you do? But anyways, Uncle um, Billy. Yeah, Uncle Billy was Thomas, a played by Thomas Mitchell. Thomas Mitchell, I said Mitchell, so I yes. had part of that right. Which um, uh, was in, I, I think, at least one or two other Capra films as well. Great character actor. Yes, great character. I actor. mean, and he could do um, just you know many different things. And another, we'll, we'll probably um, mention we'll, some we'll other take, actors yeah, in a at minute. At the very end, we'll mention some of the other actors. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so you think his breaking point was at the bank? I, well, I think that you know that's going to start it because. Um, you know, I mean, that's, you know, when he came home, when he found out that he didn't have the money and, um, you know, and just watching him be rude to his wife and his children. And I mean, right. he snapped. I mean, there was no, I, you know, I mean, f- he got, he snapped. For for me, for me, his breaking point is the same as the thing that brought him to his breaking point. I think there's a snapping, yes, at the bank. But there's these subtle things that that pile on to the point where he's ready to kill himself. You know? Yeah, it's. A, I, I mean, it, it's the going. It's literally you could. But argue, that was the final straw. You, I mean, you literally could argue it's going to uh, Potter and begging for the money, and him saying you're worth more dead, dead than, than alive. alive. You yeah, know, because all he has point. is a. It could be the bar at Martini's, you know, where mm-hmm. he's he's crying out to god and he asks for a prayer from god and he gets a punch in the face instead right you know yeah um but it was all because these these all happened because of the money um being misplaced i mean that was you know if that hadn't have happened so when he loses it on his uncle you think that's his breaking point right well i think yeah basically when that money um ironically um his uncle was very absent-minded um and it's interesting because he tried to show Potter up uh, right when he was at the bank and um, put and the got, money in. And, and he got duped, yeah. Yeah, in the newspaper, and Potter realized that Potter had the money because he accidentally folded it up in a newspaper while he was talking, and then when he went to the window to make the deposit, he couldn't find it. He didn't have it. But then, you know, the the scenes, the things that happened after that wouldn't have happened. Um, yeah, yeah, if, I agree. Yeah, if if he hadn't have lost it. I mean, Jimmy kept would have kept going, and so it's almost like, you know, um, basically, he's still not getting the picture. Even though, if you look from the point before he loses the money and all the things, you know that ha- he has accomplished and all the people that he's helped, he still doesn't get it. He still doesn't realize how uh, an yes. important person he is. Yes. And to me, I mean, because it is an angel coming down from heaven, it's almost like God saying, "Okay, we're just going to have to do this then." Yeah. Um, we're going to have to um, really shake your world for you to figure this and, out. And to me, one of the most powerful scenes, and there's so many powerful scenes in the movie, is the scene in Martini's bar. Oh, God. And so um, wh- why don't we just take a little peek into that scene where he- where we hear Jimmy Stewart's prayer. Yes, amazing. 
How about some of that good spaghetti? We got everything. and we're back and man what a scene in martini's bar with jimmy stewart amazing scene and and the thing of it is is like roger said you know he his answer to his prayer and jimmy even says it in the movies is a punch in the mouth um you know because god works in mysterious ways as we all know (laughs) and And that was you know um god was it was already in in plans to get because all through this and i don't know how how many um how many minutes we are into this film by this point before we even see his guardian angel. I mean, we're pretty far into the film. I mean, this is the third oh, yeah. act of the this film. This is the third act of the film. Yeah. And, um, but anyways, the scene where Jimmy's at the bar and he's like, you know, the scene we, we just saw, um, I'm not a praying man and everything like that. It was just so emotional. So, I mean, just Jimmy Stewart magic. And yep. Frank Capra said, okay, um, I didn't get the camera angle I, I wanted. He's like, because I want to pull in on your face while you're doing this. He's like, I just did a steady shot. And Jimmy said to him, I can't do it again. And which Jimmy usually, you know, he'll, I'll do, I'll try. But he just knew he could not capture that again. All his emotions from everything, maybe the war, all that came up. So what Capra did uh, I believe later that night is, you know, there was no computers or anything to do. So he took frame by frame and cut it and basically, um, I, I don't know what he had, but basically focused it back in. So it looks, when you're looking at it, it is smooth as silk and looks like the camera's just panning in on Jimmy's face. And it didn't. Frank Capra right. did that with... It's all editing. Yeah, basically tape and... Hours in, the, in a dark yeah, film room. Yeah, yep. exactly. Absolutely. To pull each one closer and closer and closer to get the shot that he he wanted to get. So that's just, again, amazing. So, so let's mention some of the character actors that are in this film and some of their impact that they went on to have. And then let's kind of wrap this this long segment up, which, I mean, we're talking It's a Wonderful Life. How could you not? Yeah. We can, we, you and I could spend three hours talking about or it. Or maybe three days, actually. <laughs> but let's, let's talk about some of the character actors, and then let's wrap up with what is the message of this film? What is the impact of this film culturally and, you know, since, it, since its release? Um, I want to talk about. Let's just go down the list here. Um, you mentioned Sheldon Leonard, who yes. played the played the barkeep. Yeah, at Martini's Bar. Yeah. Um, he was an actor, um, a character actor. Uh, he was in um, uh, one of the Thin Man movies. Um, you know, just again a character actor, a decent actor, and everything like that. But his claim to fame was um, he became a producer of some of the most amazing TV shows of his time. Oh, yeah. And Roger will go ahead and list... uh, Yeah, if you look at his credits on IMDb, just I'll mention four of them. Make Room for Daddy, that was in in the 50s, uh, ran for 11 years, 53 to 64. The Dick Van Dyke Show, he's a producer of that, 61 to 66. Gomer Pyle, 64 to 69. 
and he's the producer of the Andy Griffith Show. Yeah, so amazing, so, amazing. An amazing run that yeah. he had there. And um, when you look at the guy and the characters he plays, he's you know sometimes not the brightest character or whatever, but the man was a genius. He really oh, was as far a- absolutely. as you know, being able to yep. produce these. Uh, a couple other character actors, Frank Phelan. Um, he, he, um, Ernie, the cab driver yeah, played Ernie, the cab driver. And, uh, he went on to do, um, the many lives of Dobie Gillis and, um, uh, the lost weekend, show. funny girl. Um, so he, he himself, you know, had a very successful, very successful career afterwards. Um, who else we have? Uh, we have Thomas Mitchell who played the angel, right? No, 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 no. no. Uncle Billy, uncle Billy. Yes. Yeah. Played uncle Billy. Um, he was in Gone with the Wind earlier than that, earlier than that. He went on to play in High Noon. And, of course, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. So, you know, this cast of, of character actors, they were just the best of the best right. at that time, you know. And mentioning character actors, we must mention Ward Bond, who was in this, which he was one of uh, John Wayne's um, stock company actors. I mean, he was um, and I don't know, more – John Wayne films and I. Oh yeah. Um, you know, uh, Henry or Wagon, John Ford. Yeah, John Wa- Ford used him yeah. a lot, and he was probably in more John Ford. Wagon films Train, John Wayne. Uh, The Searchers. He was in the Maltese Falcon with Henry Bogart. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this guy. I mean, just an incredible oh, yeah. character actor. Yeah. Rio Bravo. I mean, we could go. I could go. I could just scan down through here and give you Pillars of the Sky, Dakota Incident, The Searchers. Um, Mr. Roberts, I mean, on and on and on and on and on and on. Just, you know, just so many great, great roles that he was, Hondo he was in. I mean, just, yeah, yeah, just, these were the best of the best character actors. Right, and they didn't, you know, and I actually watched a documentary on character actors, and, you know, they kind of get shoved under because, you know, they're not the main stars, but, I mean, they are... Um, the essence, the, the, the main glue actor, that holds a film together. Very well put. I mean, they are the, the you know, without them, the main uh, attraction, the main actor, actors wouldn't, um, you know, be able to, the film would not be near as good. And again, this is a perfect example of a perfect cast all the way through and through. Absolutely. So, so let's just kind of, uh, oh man, wrap this up. I don't know how you uh, can wrap this up in any way succinctly whatsoever, but um, what do you think, Kevin? What is the impact? What is the what is the message of this film to you? And uh, don't live in Bedford Falls. <laughs> no, um, I'm gonna smack you. Yeah, <clears throat> the it's it's the it's the message. I mean, it's it's the. I mean, like I said, it's a simple thing, really. The grass is always greener. You always think, and I don't know how many people I've known that um you know live in um you know in ohio even or whatever and they think okay you know and maybe they've got problems or whatever if i just get out um everything will be better but you know obviously everything follows with you and it's just the fact that he didn't realize that that is i think everybody's got um, a place and everything like that and then and in this he did not realize what an effect and and then when clarence shows him um you know uh, what it would be like what um not just um bedford falls but because he saved his brother in the beginning his brother ended up going to war 
and saved a bunch of uh, people on a troop ship because he shot a plane down before it hit the ship. And all these <laughs> yeah. people died um, because Jimmy wasn't born and wasn't there to save his brother. I mean, it's just so many things uh, that we ourselves don't realize that we do um, and how we impact and make a difference. And, you know, and I think it's one of the things that Clarence says is nobody's a failure who has friends. Um, and that is one of, you know, the messages at the end of the film as well. Yep, absolutely. And, and to me, <coughs> it's it's the message is sacrifice of individuality over for the sake of community, for the sake of family, yes. for the sake of others, others before self. Um, and that's a message that could be heard today. Needs We need a little more of that today. Exactly, you know? exactly. You, you know, know, always putting – and that's that's the thing that Capra had is, is always putting – the other person before you, yeah, um, you know, not just family, yes, of course, um, friends and that thing, but just anybody, and um, yeah, I mean, the message there is, you know, right in front of your face, and it's just absolutely. So, yeah. so let's just go ahead and wrap this up with some kind of little uh, news and uh, tidbits about the film. Uh, it was nominated for six Oscars, and uh, it won for. Technical Achievement Award, but it, and it lost. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Film Editing, Best Sound Recording. It lost all of those, but it won the Technical Achievement Award uh, for some of the effects and things it did at the time. Frank Capra did win the Golden Globe for Best Director that year, yep. which is news and noteworthy. Um, <clears throat> AFI in their Top 100 list, you know, it's very very famous list. If you go to their website. They have top 100s of everything now, not just movies. Right. You know, they went on to, they realized the money that can be made just from listing top <laughs> 100s, right? But um, some of the things, some, some of the places where It's a Wonderful Life appears on AFI's top 100s. Of course, it appears on its top 100 movies of all time at number 11. Um, and I'm not sure what this is, but it's AFI's 100 Years, 100 Passions. It, it rates as far as passionate scenes, maybe. I guess. I, I haven't even heard of that one. Number eight, all time. Mm. Uh, the 100 Heroes and Villains. Mr. Potter rates number six as the number six all-time villain of all time. I mean, the highest-rated villain of all time. Okay. He comes in at number six. Now, think of all the villains ever, yeah, portray exactly. that's ever portrayed good. in movies. That's pretty good. And the hero, George Bailey, cracks the top ten at number nine, which I found very interesting. Um. There are no songs in the top 100, but nominated or honorable mention was Buffalo Gal, Won't You Come Out Tonight. Um, uh, there are four. There are no uh, movie quotes in the top 100, which is shocking to me. Exactly. But yeah. it has honorable mention is, what is it you want, Mary? You want the moon? The scene you heard earlier was nominated. Uh, the second nomination was to my big brother, George, the richest man in town, which is an iconic phrase at the end of the movie. And then, of course, look, Daddy. Teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his, his wings. wings. Um, and it was nominated, but, but uh, not um, the winner. The highest place it arrives on AFI's top 100 is 100 Cheers. And that's that feel-good mo moment in a movie, and it's ranked number one of all time for, yeah, uh, for I would, feel good. Yes, agree um, with that. Yeah, and it's also, ironically, on their AFI's top 10 fantasy films, it's ranked number three in the fantasy genre, which... This isn't a true story? <laughs> Whereas, you know, you would think... Could be. 
Well, in today's modern audience <laughs> thinks of fantasy as Lord of the Rings, right. dragons, elves, the fantastical elements, but no, this was a you know an angel and it was heaven and there's some fantastical elements to this film and so it rated um, as uh, yeah as uh, number three there. Um, some other real quick news, uh, some trivia about this. I thought it'd be fun to mention. Oh, a few and, oh go quick, ahead. No, yeah, go ahead. Um, another. Uh, I don't know if you'd call him a character actor, but um, one of the boys that uh, pushes a button. They're dancing on this floor, and underneath the floor is a swimming pool. It's a famous scene. Well, again, the whole film's a famous scene. Uh, and one of those boys was um, Alfalfa yes. from uh, The Little Rascals. The Little Rascals fan. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. So um, here's some quick trivia. Um, and it's an answer to our earlier story that we told, at least according to IMDb. Here's a third version. <laughs> oh, the, there's a third? The third version to the glass. To the rock. To the, the glass. The rock breaking the glass. <clears throat> For the scene that required Donna Reed to throw a rock through the window of the Granville house, Frank Campra hired a marksman to shoot it out on cue. To everyone's amazement, Reed broke the window by herself. She'd played baseball in high school and had a strong throwing arm. Well, see, I, that was pretty that much what I said. That leads to yours. Yeah. 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 She hit it, nailed it the first time. The gym floor that opens to reveal a swimming pool was real. It was located at Beverly Hills High School in Los Angeles, which is interesting. Um, as Uncle Billy drunkenly leaves the Bailey home, it sounds as if he stumbles oh, yes. into some trash cans on the sidewalk. In fact, a crew member dropped a large tray of props Right after Thomas Mitchell went off screen. Right, but Mitchell quickly um, said... Improvised and said, yeah, I'm all right, I'm okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Beautifully um, done. Again, you know, that just shows um, what, you know, an actor, you know, he'll because he, that scene would have been shot over because they didn't, you know... So to save the scene, yeah, his improv... And, and everyone thinks that's just part of the film. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's see... While filming the scene in which George prays in the bar, which you heard earlier, Jimmy Stewart has said that he was so overcome that he began to sob. Frank Capra later reframed and blew up the shot because he wanted to catch the expression on Stewart's face, yep. lending to Kevin's story that he told us. So, uh, Capra, oft, Capra had often said this is uh, his favorite film of all time. And last little trivia thing, there are hundreds of trivia notes, but the photograph, a, a photograph of James Stewart at age of six months was donated by his parents and was included in the Bailey home set. So if you look in the background that there's a little baby picture, that's actually Jimmy Stewart when he was six oh, months wow. old. Oh, wow. I so, did not know. Yeah. But yeah, again, what it's just a wonderful film. It's a wonderful life. And just yep. the way that, you know, they show Jimmy Stewart's life from a young boy all the way up to, you know, being a father and everything. I mean, I just, like I said, Roger and I could go on and on about this film. Absolutely. So if you haven't seen it, it's a must. And and we encourage you, make, oh. it, a, make it a part of your Christmas tradition, you know? And, and one last story, if I could. Um, there was, this is uh, Gloria Stewart, Jimmy's wife, was telling the story uh, in an interview. And there was um, this guy who was getting ready to commit suicide. Um, and It's a Wonderful Life was on. And there, I don't know what scene it was or, or what, but I think it was a scene either in the bar or something like that. And um, that made him stop. He put the gun down. This is a glorious story. He put the gun down, turned himself in uh, to the police, and wrote to Jimmy Stewart from jail saying that you saved my life. Wow. It's an amazing story. That's Coming from Jimmy yeah, Stewart's wife, that, I think that's, yeah. uh, a, you know. 
That's that's incredible. Yeah. Okay, well, that's going to wrap it up for this segment, as long as it was, <laughs> on It's a Wonderful Life. When we come back, we're going to share with you our top five Christmas films. And it might be classic edition. There's been some debate over that and some miscommunication. You are listening to the Film Coterie Classics Edition. We'll be right back after the music. All right, and we're back to the Film Coterie Classics Edition. And, Kevin, we have a little debate about our Well, next first of segment. all, let's talk about this miscommunication thing. <laughs> so, so yes. Roger texted me, the, well, he, you know, we <laughs> talked uh, the night before, the day before, about what we were going to do and everything like that. Then he texted me um, uh, at 10 o'clock uh, this morning, which I, you know, was getting ready to, to come here. So I did not uh, get the text um, that says I want to, you know, chat briefly about um, today's podcast, which that's all it said. <laughs> I get here today. He does this to me all the time. And so let me pick up the story from there. <clears throat> you know, I, I had forgotten. We, I, I told Kevin, let's just do our top 10 Christmas films from any age, any generation, any time period, period. Just what are your top five all time? And, um, then I got to thinking, you know, Adam, my other co-host on the regular Film Coterie podcast, had said, I think we ought to do a top five holiday films. Yeah. Because I know his would be vastly different than mine. It would make for fun debate on the show. And so I got to thinking, well, maybe we ought to do our top five classic films. But what the heck? If we have to repeat these on 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 another podcast with Adam, we'll just You'll just do have that. to listen to yep. it again. Absolutely. Guys, that's, that's how it's so I be. don't know what Kevin's top five are. I'm really interested. I do know what his number one is because he knows what my number one is. Right. <laughs> so we have the same number one, and I'll give you a hint. You just listened to an hour of us talk <laughs> <Yeah>. about it. <laughs> but I'm interested to see if we have any crossover, and if we do, um, if where we rank these in order. So, And then there's one that I think will end up on both of our lists. But I don't know which version of that film will end up on our list. So, anyway. Well, yeah, because I'm going to go just with classics. And that's what, and that's you're, yeah, that's what you're going all, with? Mine are all classics, yeah. yes. Well, absolutely. Because that's what this program's all about. Yes. Okay, yeah, that absolutely. makes sense. So, right. Kevin, what is your... Um, oh, crap, I forgot to put mine in order. Hold on. Oh, go ahead. oh well, anyways, I'll talk while he does that. <laughs> um, so, Adam, as everyone knows, um, if he was sitting here and had to do a classic um, Christmas... Um, and Adam, I, I, you know, I've met you twice, but I love you, buddy. Um, I, I was just telling Roger that I think his classic Christmas films, because everyone has their own definition of classic. Um, it would be Silent Night, Deadly Night, Part 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. I don't know if they'd be in that order. I mean, he might like three more than one. Okay. But I've rated my top five. I'm <laughs> okay. sorry. I just looked Now, are you going to go... We're going to go five from to five one. up. Yeah, okay. that's right. Okay. So, um, I'll go first. And so, my number five film 
is the 1947 classic Miracle on 34th Street. Um, love this film. I love the message. I love th that the little girl doesn't believe in the spirit of Christmas. Um, l let me just pull up real quickly. I, I should know this off the top of my, off the top of my head. Um, just a, just a great, great film. Marine O'Hara, who is, might be my favorite. I don't know. One of my favorite actresses. Well, she's Irish, so she's good. I mean, she's okay. I'm just going to say it right here on the podcast. She's my favorite, favorite female actress she of is, all time. She is amazing. Amazing. Yep. actress. Um, and you got Edmund Gwynn as Chris Kringle and then a very young, uh, Natalie Wood yeah. as Susan Walker, who will plays go the daughter. Yep. Plays her daughter. Young, young I just love this film. A little girl whose mom is too, uh, prudish to believe in, in silly little things like Christmas and, and has raised her daughter that way as well. Yep. And so, um, that comes in great holiday classic film. I don't want to make this a long segment, so I'll just, that's my comments about it. Kevin, what's your number five film? Number five, uh, would be, and again, it, it, the order was hard for me. Um, but we'll go with number five as holiday in, uh, 1942 with nice. Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire. Um, you know, and again, that could just be a holiday film because they, um, it's basically the idea, uh, they're two song and dance men, um, Bing and Fred, and what they decide to do, Bing Crosby decides, is you know he doesn't want to work that much, so he basically wants to open up an inn and only be open on the holidays and have the rest of the days off, where most places are closed on the holidays. So every holiday they put on a show and everything like that. This film introduced the biggest Christmas song ever. Oh yes, White Christmas. Um, yeah. It was the first time it was written by Irving Berlin. It was the first time that it ever had you know was heard before. Um, it went on. Um, I still think it's one of the top, not just Christmas songs, but selling records um, of all time. Um, the servicemen in World War II um, listened to, I mean, it's just, the song just did so much. Um, and again, you've got, you know, Bing's wonderful voice and everything, and you've got the fabulous Fred Astaire in there. Oh, yeah. David Niven's in this. I mean, it just, it's just incredible. David Niven's in what? No, just not <laughs> Yeah. I was like, not again. I'm um, sorry, go ahead. We'll get to David Niven in a little bit. Yep, yeah, we will. <laughs> <clears throat> um, so anyways, Holiday Inn, uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, highly recommend it. It was remade real quick into a movie, White Christmas, uh, with Bing yeah. Crosby and Danny Kaye, and, and, which and, wasn't, in my opinion, it's a good movie, but not near... I'll be honest with you, this uh, film will end up on my list as well, too, but I almost put White Christmas instead of it. Really? And even though I think Holiday Inn is a better film... It's not a it's not a true Christmas film. It's, it's got a the song film about Christmas in it, Roger. It's <laughs> it's a film about the holidays. So you get all the seasons in the holidays. Whereas White Christmas is just about Christmas time. A little more focused, but anyway. True. Let's go to our number four before we get into a fist fight. Kevin, yeah. what did you have as your number four film? I thought it was your turn. Well, I went first last time, so it's your turn to go first. All right, whatever. <laughs> it's because he's He's a boss, basically. That's why I got to do this. Uh, anyways, uh, Shop Around the Corner. Uh, nice. 1940, uh, uh, James Stewart. Yeah. Again, uh, and Margaret Sullivan um, was remade into a film with uh, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan called You Got Mail. A lot of people um, listening to this said if they don't like classic movies, they've seen that one. I um, highly recommend that you go back and watch a, the a original. Great, great quick story. Love that film. Um Introduced it to my kids about two years ago, and my daughter loves that film. Yeah. Really, it's, yep, yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, again, it's it's a magical film. 
in a way, uh, again, you know, I could go on with this film too for a long time, but it just shows, um, again, the, the, the spirit of Christmas um, in, a, in a different way, obviously, than It's a Wonderful Life. Sure. But again, check it out. It's, it's, it's uh, a great film. It's a wonderful film. Wonderful my, my number four film is The Bishop's Wife, uh, with, uh, done in 1948 with Cary Grant, Loretta Young, and David Niven. Um, just an amazing film. Um, might end up higher on your list somewhere. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> if I had to guess, knowing <laughs> you for 46 years now. No. <laughs> um, anyway. 46 years? It hasn't been that's true. Roger, Closer think of to your age and when we okay, met. We met for, at seven. Yeah, forty years then. <laughs> Let's not talk about that. Or yes. Anyway, <laughs> um, just an amazing story about a, a a priest, a minister who's lost his way, and another angel comes in the form of Cary Grant to kind of help them get on the right path. And it's just a beautiful, heartwarming story. It's my number four film. My number three film you've already mentioned is Holiday Inn. And uh, I love this film. I love the interaction with the characters. I love the music in it. And my gosh, d- do we say anything more? It's got White, White Christmas, Christmas in yes, it. in it as a film. So what's your number three, Kevin? Uh, number three would be uh, Christmas Carol. Now, Christmas Carol has been done, I think, more than any other So story. which version? That was going to be my question. Yes, of course. I mean, there's so many different versions. Uh, but, you know, that's one thing that I'm going to have to look up because I think as, as far as a book has been, um, it has been made um, just about more than there's been more. I mean, even Patrick Stewart from Star Trek yes. has, has a version of it. I mean, you know, um, but my favorite is 1951, uh, Alistair Sim. Um, again, uh, and, and just uh, on a side note, the one that Jim Carrey uh, recently did a few, well, a few years ago, um, actually the voice he was trying to decide what voice he would use for Scrooge. And you listen to um, Alistair Sim do it in 51, Jimmy or, um, uh, Jim Carrey did that voice. Right. He did yeah. because he was like, there's no other voice that can do that. So, uh, yeah, 1951 um, is my favorite version. And I have uh, several versions because I love that story. It's, it's yes. a great story. Um, but my favorite is definitely, yeah, Alistair Sim. I, is, I think, isn't is there a 1978 or 76? There's a 70s version, and that's my first exposure to it. Oh, the one... I don't think it's necessarily the best version of it. Was it the musical? Because they actually did it into a musical. I don't with remember. Albert Finney. I don't think it was it a musical. Wasn't a musical. No, maybe it was even seventy. I can't. But anyway, there's one done one in my childhood that came out, and that's kind of the one that I always am drawn to the most. George C. Scott. Yes. When was that one? I think it was in the seventies. Or it might have been eighty. And it was seventies, eighty. Yes. Yeah. It was in my childhood, and and that's kind of the iconic one for me, just because I was a kid. Another brilliant, yeah. Another brilliant version of that. Yeah. That's that's probably in my top. Yeah. I mean, seriously, I've got like a top five of of uh, Christmas. <laughs> that's Christmas how many. Carol. That's how yeah. many there are. Okay, so let's jump to number two. My number two film has already been mentioned, and it's Shop Around the Corner, uh, starring Jimmy Stewart. Um, Kevin summed it up greatly. Love this. I love the um, the romantic comedy uh, aspects of this film. Uh, and it does take place around the Christmas season. But I just love the interaction with the characters. Um, I, I love that I can introduce it to my daughter all these years later. 
And she's like, that's a really good movie, you know. So, yeah, that's my number two. Your number two, Kevin? My number two is um, Bishop's Wife. Yes, um, absolutely. Which, again, it was remade as uh, The, the Preacher's, Preacher's Wife. Wife with Denzel Washington and... Um, Whitney Houston. Whitney Houston, yes. thank you. Um, uh, but Bishop's Wife, my opinion, is much better. Yes, Cary Grant and David Niven. And again, just... Um, <coughs> but, th- but this film also shows... Um, Part of the problem with Cary Grant's character as an angel, um, you know, he's he's not God. He is an angel, and he does have some difficulties going through uh, uh, this challenge that he's got to uh, get David Niven to right. basically see the light, so to speak. So very interesting character study, I think, as, as far as, as that goes as well. And, of course, my number one film is It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, it's my It's in my top five films of all time i love the film it's great uh, and i say it's in my top five i have like 15 films in my top five <laughs> yeah, <I do> too. <laughs> <laughs> but uh it's it's right there in my in, in considered a great classic film we've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about it You're, did you have another one you want to mention you well know? it's a wonderful life yeah it's definitely obviously my favorite too um and again um, some honorable mentions as far as um, Christmas films. And again, there are some that are known as Christmas films, but when you watch them, they only have a little, just like Holiday Inn. But right. um, Going My Way with Bing Crosby is, oh, yeah. I mean, Bing Crosby, uh, Barry Fitzgerald, uh, just uh, a- another wonderful, wonderful film, which Bing won um, Best Actor for. And if you haven't seen that film, watch it. Um, Leo McCary, I believe, is the director's name. And he was a director that did kind of get to the uh, um, Frank Capra esque right. style. The interesting thing about Leo McCary, and he, you know, look him up. He did a lot of uh, great films. Um, one of his things, though, was he would come in with an unfinished script, or sometimes really not much one of at all. And how he would put it together and drive the actors nuts. By the way, because there's no, you know, he's like, oh, let's let's try this, let's try that. And it would always be such, you know, a tight-knitted film uh, once you saw it. So, yep. so that's, uh, yeah, for honorable mentions, definitely uh, going my way. And, and then these are not necessarily films, but are iconic, mm. classic holiday stuff. I have to mention Charlie Brown Christmas. Oh, gosh, yes. Uh, the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Santa Claus is coming to you know, town. It's funny, I just bought those uh, two <laughs> days ago. I went to Target and um, uh, bought the four um, Year Without a Santa Claus. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so we grew up on all of those great classic, the claymation type that that we just that that you and I grew up on. We just love. Um, I think that's going to wrap it up for our podcast, Kevin. It's been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed it. I hope you've enjoyed this trip down memory lane with "It's a Wonderful Life." I have, and I think this is going to be, as far as podcast goes, I think it's going to be one of um, my favorite or very, I don't know, nostalgic to me because Roger and I actually have the same top films. Um, which is usually not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, we, 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 we appreciate each other's film. We do like each other's films, but we have our own uh, yeah. specific. But, yeah, I mean, I knew this was going to be, you know, I, I didn't have to come in with boxing gloves or anything because I knew we were going to well, definitely I, agree. I, as the, I take a gander, you know, we have a lot planned for 2018. As we move forward with the Film Cuttery Classics edition, <clears throat> we're going to endeavor to see a classic film at least once a month. And we'll probably do a top five around that film. And I don't think we're going to agree very often on what, probably our, not. what our top five is as we move forward. You but know? that's the fun part of it. I mean, yep. if, if Roger and I agreed on everything, you know, it, it, it wouldn't be as much fun. And it's all with love. 
definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've been listening to the Film Coterie Classics Edition. Um, just keep your eye on our, our regular site as we continue to do modern films on the Film Coterie podcast each week with Adam and I. And then Kevin will be on that some. And uh, Marnie will come back on occasion and do some with us as well. I've enjoyed this day. I've enjoyed the time together with you, Kevin. So I've enjoyed uh, it, too. And, you know, I'm looking forward to uh, being um, on more. And, you know, I've you know, made my decision to start watching new films. I'm <laughs> it's a little be scared. A whole, whole new world for you. I'm going to need a psychiatrist probably, but uh, <laughs> I think it'll be interesting. So That'll be awesome. Well, Kevin, you have a Merry Christmas. You too, Roger. And we'll see you next time on another edition of the Film Coterie Classics.